So I'd like to start this morning by acknowledging that this is our last full day of retreat together. And some of us may have noticed that mind starting to move to the future to leave in tomorrow. So real encouragement to make use of this last day, the conditions of practice, to continue to cultivate the questioning, the anchoring, the brightness and the calmness but also to cultivate this trust, this confidence, that actually if we can de-grasp and actually meet our experience in the moment with wisdom and compassion, that that would create the conditions for future moments of meeting it with de-grasping, with wisdom and compassion. And just to help with that process, just to be really aware that one of the coordinators will be here before breakfast tomorrow and they have a, a very well-honed system of organizing lifts and taxis so that you will get away tomorrow and make your connections and everything. So just to really invite that relaxing back into as much as possible being here and collecting the body, mind, heart into the present moment. So I'd just like to say a few little things a bit more about the questioning that I've found helpful over the years. And one of, the, one of them is this aspect of not knowing, what's sometimes referred to as don't know mind. And it's something we can actually cultivate as part of the questioning. So from time to time, rather than dropping in the question, what is this? we can actually drop in the phrase, I don't know. And just seeing how that resonates, how that feels in the body-mind, to acknowledge I actually don't know. Is it different to the question? Is it similar? Does it bring a different flavor? But it just cultivates that other aspect of the question of the not knowing which sometimes with questioning it can become a bit um, lifeless. They talk about in the tradition live words and dead words. And as we've really emphasized this idea, it's the question mark that's important. And part of having a question is this idea of not really knowing the answer. So just if that feels like something that might be helpful in your practice, just to introduce that occasionally and see what that brings in terms of the practice. Another thing certainly that we've found from talking to people is how people have found different ways to make the question more their own. Rather than saying, what is this? It might be something as simple as what, but a way that it makes it resonate in one's own body and mind. So within that, to really follow your intuition. And one of the ways that the question can unfold at times is a kind of this sense of it turning back on itself. So it's almost like the question becomes, what is this that's asking what is this? So the very fact that we're here asking this question itself becomes questionable. Or another way I've found it unfolded for me is a sense of what is this that knows this? 
And if this brings, if this is how the question unfolds and it brings it more to life for you, just to follow that intuition. The only thing I would say is to really try to keep it as impersonal as possible. Within Hindu tradition, they have a, a meditation technique called Who Am I? But that tends to reinforce a bit this sense of an I. And very much within this practice, as I was saying last night, there is this sense of actually this de-grasping and this loosening of that sense of me and mine. That movement to more a sense of selflessness. So, allowing yourself to follow your intuition about how this question stays alive for you. And of course, if it does start to get too complicated, too heady, just coming back to the simplicity again of what is this. And the final thing, and this is more something I've played with outside of meditation, is in the story that Martin told of the encounter between Hui Jiang and Hui Neng. The question that Hui Neng asked in its fullness is, what is this thing and how did it come to be here? And sometimes reflecting on that second part of the question, the how, opens up this aspect of conditionality, this aspect of, as Martin talked about, that flow of conditions over millennia that has arrived into this moment of this being sitting here and asking this question. So it can really bring that sense of the mystery of our being here at all to experience this world as we uniquely experience it and all the conditions that play in that. So reflecting on that can just, again, bring the question, another aspect of the question, very much to life. So, what I'd also like to talk about is a bit about compassion. We have talked a lot about and referenced compassion within the retreat but we haven't explicitly talked about how it is cultivated within the San tradition. And in the insight meditation tradition, which many of you might be familiar with, of course you have the loving kindness and the other heart quality meditation practices. So the practice of cultivating joy, cultivating compassion and equanimity. But within the San tradition, they don't have this. The practice is just asking the question. And as someone asked me yesterday uh, a question about why isn't compassion one of the paramita? Where is its place in the tradition? And its place really is that the whole practice, the whole path is based on the bodhisattva path. That the practitioners, both monastic and lay, when they come to practice, are engaging with the bodhisattva path. The whole practice rests on and is embedded within this. So the bodhisattva is actually somebody who aspires to awaken out of compassion for all beings so that they can actually help liberate all beings from suffering. And you could say we have 
two types of bodhisattva. We have the archetypal bodhisattva that Katrin talked about yesterday uh, when she referenced Guan Yin here behind us, who hears the cries of the world. And these are really inspirational for our practice. The mythology around them is that they actually are awakened beings who have perfected the paramita and who give up their final nirvana, their final awakening, to be reborn again and again and again for the benefit of all beings, that they can actually help support all beings be freed from suffering so that they can actually teach the Dharma. And you could say that is the, the most selfless act of all, to give up your final liberation so that you can still act out of compassion for all beings. So as I said, these can inspire us in our practice. But within some practice, everyone who practices, every monastic, every lay person, practices within this framework, this understanding of the path, that are actually practicing for the well-being of all. And as part of that, they take on four vows. And I'll go through the vows and look at how we can um, engage with them to a certain extent. So the four vows are, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. The defilements are inexhaustible. I vow to cut them off. Dharma gates are numberless. I vow to learn them all. The Buddha's way is insurpassable. I vow to accomplish it. And as you listen to that, you know, it, it has this almost sense of impossibility. And part of that is actually bringing a sense of humility towards the practice. Even as we engage in this, we are aware that this is something that actually we can't do ourselves. In a sense, it's a communal practice. It's the practice of the community. So sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. <coughs> this really is, and again, to say this really beforehand about all four of them, these are actually, again, activities. They're practices. To you know, we are to take them into our life and actually cultivate them. So for the first one, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. It's actually asking us, like Guan Yin, to listen to the cries of the world, to actually turn to the world and allow ourselves to be touched by the suffering both of ourselves but of others. And in our busy lives, we can have that tendency to not notice, to not notice the homeless person, to not have the time or the energy to notice some of the systemic problems we have in our society. So this is really that encouragement to, to start to notice, to allow ourselves to be opened by it. 
to empathize. So that sense of actually feeling with. There's this word in Pali they use, anakampa, this heart that beats with or resonates with the suffering of another. And allowing that sense of a movement of compassion to come from that feeling with and that openness to ourselves and others' suffering. Defilements are inexhaustible. I vow to cut them off. And of course, what we find here is actually when we do open ourselves like this, things arise that obstruct us, that obstruct that natural flow of movement of the heart to respond. Our fear, our sense of lack, our sense of being overwhelmed, our busyness, so here what we're actually called to do is actually to release, to degrasp, to let go of the reactivity that's getting in the way of allowing that heart to open and respond. It's to bring the practice of questioning of the breath into the moment so that we can let go and release what it is that blocks us. Dharma gates are numberless. I vow to learn them all. So when we degrasp, when we are able to let go of what's blocking that movement of the heart, we find ourselves in that space that Catherine talked about, that space of potential, of possibility, that space where actually an appropriate response based in wisdom and compassion can naturally arise. So it's also learning to trust in and value that space as potential and possibility. And the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to accomplish it. So this is actually how we put compassion into action. And there's a saying, ethics is compassionate action. Compassion is an ethical attitude. So the Buddha's way is actually twofold. We can think of it as the paramita. The archetypal bodhisattvas are said to have perfected these paramita. So this is our cultivation of how we bring this into the world. Or we can also think of it as the Eightfold Path, the path we cultivate, which is a path of ethics, a path of engagement with the world. And as part of this bodhisattva path, the practitioners also take on the bodhisattva precepts, which are contained in the Brahma's Net Sutra, which is a, a Chinese Mahayana Sutra. And this consists of 10 major precepts and 48 minor precepts. 
And these also engage the lay people, so they take on a lot more than just the five precepts that we took on as part of this practice. And they're a mixture of precepts. Some of them are what we're used to, this idea of things we refrain from so we can be harmless. But they're also things we cultivate to be beneficial. And often when I like to talk about the five precepts, I often also refrain the five precepts in this way as well. That we have this idea of what we're refraining from. But we also have this opposite from that base of harmlessness. What is the opposite? So what is the opposite to non-harming, to not causing harm to another person, to not killing, is to actually protect life, to care for life. For not taking what's not freely given, it's to actually the practice of generosity and to take care of the things of the world. To not undertake sexual misconduct, the opposite is to actually respect, to have respect for beings. To not uh, engage in harmful speech, it's actually to practice harmonious speech, truthful speech. And again, to not take intoxicants that dull the mind. It's actually to treasure the cultivation of a clear and bright mind. So again, when we take on these guidelines, we're not just taking on things we refrain from, we also take on the opposite, the cultivation of actually being of benefit in the world. So there's a, a particular image of a bodhisattva, of a bodhisattva compassion, where they have multiple heads and a thousand arms. And each arm, each hand, each palm, in some um, images has, a, has an eye, in other images has an implement. But what this always evokes for me is the idea of this being a communal endeavor that is as a community together that we actually cultivate these vows, that we actually bring compassion into the world. So each of us have our own unique skills that, and abilities that we can bring into the world. But as we combine those together and act together, we can actually have quite an impact in the world actually and how at this time this is really more and more important there are so many multiple crises that we now have economic and social injustice the climate crisis the environmental and ecological crisis and these can actually feel very overwhelming we can have a sense of being powerless but as we come together as communities of practitioners and engage with these, we can actually find we have more ability to respond in a way that starts to make things change. Particularly as, if we like, sanghas around the world engage and combine and create 
that momentum, that possibility of momentum of change. And we had a question about this idea of giving up or this letting go of opinions for and against and how this can actually interact with this sense of acting in the world in response to social injustice and the other crises. And as I, as I said yesterday, it's not that we give up our opinions by or our values that guide us in the world, that guide how we act and live our lives. But it's not grasping those tightly so that we start to create a self and an other, that we start to create that polarization where one, where I am right and another is wrong. It's in that space of actually degrasping and really being able to listen to and hear the viewpoint of the other, their fear, their concerns, whatever it may be, that actually we have that possibility of responding out of a space of compassion that actually may make a difference. So, really the encouragement for today is to think of the practice in that wider perspective to bring that, that sense into your practice that actually we're practicing for the well-being, not just of ourselves, but of all beings. That we're creating the conditions that we can be in the world in a way where we can let go of grasping and actually respond from that space where wisdom and compassion can more naturally flow. So I'll finish there. I'll open up to questions if anyone has anything particularly. Yeah, I mean, th this is the, the other part of, you know, this whole engagement with compassion. It can also feel overwhelming that there's nothing we can do. And in a sense, as an, as an individual, there is only so much you can do. As you said, you respond in the way that actually you feel you can respond. So a lot of these crises that we have are actually systemic crises. And you know, in a sense, that's then how we engage as communities of practitioners, both on the political front, 
but also, you know, in how we engage with different aspects of different crises. Um, you know, the, the, the thing is to keep the heart open. And the, the difficulty with becoming overwhelmed is it can start to, kind of, or feeling powerless, is it can start to close the heart. But also what I would say within that is actually cultivation and joy is an important part of this path as well, to keep that balance. Because often, if we only turn to the suffering, we can start to see the world as nothing more than suffering and we can start to feel that overwhelm. So actually also turning to and having that balance of seeing the good in the world, how people are trying to respond, of touching into how nature and practicing together in community and things like that can bring a sense of joy and bring a sense of uh, nourishment so that we have that, that resourcing to actually be able to respond from uh, a more nourished and resourced way. I mean, part of that is listening to yourself and what, you know, what feels appropriate. Part of that is also uh, recognizing, you know, what it is that may be getting in the way and actually finding how you can work with that and release that. Um, you know, the truth is, as, you know, as it says in the vow, sentient beings are numberless. This is an impossible task in a sense. It's kind of the way of the world we find the response that we can refine as best we can and we find our place of calling, if you like, as much as we can. Um, so I, there's two things about this, this uh, you know, finding the space and that movement out. One is there is that sense of nourishment. So one of the things you find with activists is to become overwhelmed, they burn out. So it's very important to have that source of joy and cultivation of joy in the life, but also that source of where you can balance and re-nourish and get, you know, get that sense of actually, I have the capacity to respond. But then there is also actually that movement and allowing that movement to actually happen. And it, it, that balance is something that we all have to kind of navigate and play with in our own lives. Again, it's that the middle way and that not fall into, into either extreme. And for each of us, that would be different at different times in our lives. Thank you. So it's time for walking. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.